This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Yielding to the Master Gardener. In the first half, Janet B. Bradford shares her address, Carry On. Then in the second half, Russell C. Taylor speaks on The Gardener of Gethsemane. Happy August 2nd. Some of you may be celebrating a birthday today. If so, you join the likes of Rembrandt's wife, Saskia, who was born in 1612, Irish actor Peter O'Toole, born in 1932, and Andrew Gold in 1951. He wrote the song, Thank You for Being a Friend, which became the theme song for that popular TV series in the 80s, The Golden Girls. For others, however, today is one of sadness and reflection as they remember someone who died. Some who have passed away on August 2nd include Wild Bill Hickok, who died in 1876, the Italian tenor Enrico Caruso in 1921, Alexander Graham Bell in 1922, and in 1988, the American ventriloquist and puppeteer Sherry Lewis. Remember Lamb Chop? Well, like any good librarian, I did not stop here. After some additional research, I discovered that in 1776, the Declaration of Independence was actually signed on August 2nd, not July 4th, like most of us think. In 1790, the first U.S. Census was conducted, and in 1870, the Tower Subway, the world's first underground tube, opened in London. These are all good things, but August 2nd also has had its share of tragedy. In 1922, a typhoon hit China, killing more than 50,000 people. In 1934, Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany. In 1968, an earthquake shook the Philippines, killing 270 people and wounding nearly 300. In 1973, a flash fire killed 51 at the Summerland Amusement Center at Douglas on the Isle of Man. And in 1980, a bomb exploded at a railway station in Bologna, Italy, killing 85 people and wounding more than 200. I next wondered what notable August 2nd events we have as Latter-day Saints, and found that in 1831, Joseph Smith, who had traveled to Missouri for the first time, met with others on today's date to begin the building of yet another new settlement for the outcast saints. Our prophet recorded... I assisted the Colesville branch of the church to lay the first log for a house as a foundation of Zion in the Kaw Township, 12 miles west of Independence. The log was carried in place by 12 men in honor of the 12 tribes of Israel. At the same time, through prayer, the land of Zion was consecrated and dedicated by Elder Sidney Rigdon for the gathering of the saints. He concludes, It was a season of joy to those present and afforded a glimpse of the future, which time will yet unfold to the satisfaction of the faithful. It was a season of joy, and afforded a glimpse of the future. Keep that thought. Just two years later, on August 2, 1833, a revelation was given through Joseph Smith at Kirtland, Ohio. At that time, members of the Church were being persecuted in Missouri, and the Prophet had been forced to sign an agreement in late July that the Saints would leave Jackson County. This revelation is Section 97 of the Doctrine and Covenants, which gives beautiful insights into Zion, the pure in heart, and instructions for building a temple, a house of the Lord. 
Finally, I want to bring to your attention that on August 2, 1985, our church released the first new English hymn book in 37 years. This is the Green Hymnal, and it replaced the Navy one, for those of you who can remember that far back. Since then, this hymnal has been translated into many languages and continues to be the one that is used today. More on hymns to come. So why point out all of this? I hope you recognize that we could research any day of the year and come up with similar results. Every day is important, and we need to remember that good and bad things happen. In fact, I think sometimes the difference between a good day and a bad day is about 24 hours. Good and bad are part of life. (laughs) Good and bad are part of life, part of the opposition of all things, which Lehi discusses in his final words to his son Jacob. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, we read, To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. I encourage all of us to savor every moment of every day. And on those bleak days, when nothing seems to be going right, to think of Hymn 255 and carry on. Have that season of joy that affords a glimpse of the future, which the Prophet Joseph Smith wrote in his journal on August 2, 1831. The hymn Carry On was written in response to the theme Onward with Mormon Ideals that was announced for the Mutual Improvement Association in 1930, the Church's centennial year. This was an exciting time in the Church, as members look back over the first hundred years, yet look to the future as well. We have so many examples of saints who press forward with faith during trying times. Our dear President Hinckley put it this way, It isn't as bad as you sometimes think it is. It all works out. Don't worry. I say that to myself every morning. It will all work out if you do your best. It will all work out. Put your trust in God and move forward with faith and confidence in the future. The Lord will not forsake us. He will not forsake us. If President Hinckley needed to remind himself daily to carry on, then we probably need to be reminding ourselves even more. I believe that carrying on is a tradition that gets passed down through the generations, and I've been blessed by the valiant examples of my ancestors. My maternal paternal grandmother, Eliza Tuscher Bischoff, was born in Switzerland. She fell in love about the same time that she and her family met the Mormon missionaries. The entire family eventually joined the Church and started preparations to join the Saints in America. Margaretha, her sister, was especially thrilled and could not wait to go. But my grandmother was pulled in two directions. She wanted to go with her family, but she did not want to leave her sweetheart. She called it her time of sadness and joy. Just before the family got ready to leave, tragedy struck when Margaretha became ill and died. It is said that my great-grandmother's hair turned white overnight. Nonetheless, they followed through with their plans and sailed for America with heavy hearts. Aunt Jo, from my mom's side of our family, was a stalwart saint who carried on even though that meant being disowned. Johanna Adriana Goebel-Tonks was raised in Holland. 
She and her sister had to hide their Book of Mormon under the mattress in their attic bedroom. The oil for their little lamp would burn just long enough for the sisters to read one chapter in the book every night. Their mother, suspicious of all things Mormons, said one evening, No more light for you girls up there. Somehow Aunt Jo managed to get some matches, and she and her sisters were able to continue reading that precious chapter nightly, even though the oil should have burned out long before. She states, No one in this whole wide world can tell me that the hand of the Lord wasn't over us. Aunt Jo could not get baptized until she was 18, and that happened while her mother was away helping a sister. Aunt Jo recalled being discouraged, for she loved her mother, and she did not want to disobey her. She wondered if she was doing the right thing and going against her mother's wishes. But when she came up out of the water, exclaimed, Oh, I am so happy! For the greatest feeling of joy came over her, and she was glad she had done the will of the Father. When her mother came home one week later, Aunt Jo met her at the depot, and during their late-night supper said, Jo, you have come of age. While I was gone, what have you done? Aunt Jo answered, Well, Mother, I have been baptized, but let me stay here and live with you. You can go to your church, and I can go to mine. I want to stay and take care of you. Her mother replied, I cannot live with a Mormon. You leave the house now. It was 11 p.m. and raining terribly. That did not make any difference to her mother, however, and Aunt Jo had to walk 20 minutes to stay with an aunt never to return to her home again. Oh, how I love these stories of pressing forward with faith during trying times. One of the first poems I ever memorized is the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. This simple prayer contains profound truths. The imagery of becoming an instrument in the Lord's hands is beautiful, and it's my first guideline for carrying on. This has become my motto. I sang a setting of this poem at BYU commencement back in the 1980s. Often I find myself humming the song to remind me of the good I can do in the world today. In recent years, I've learned a lot about musical instruments. My husband, Darren, is a professional musician. He gets asked on occasion to acquire a new instrument for a recording gig, so we're usually on the lookout for something to complement his current lineup that now numbers 118. Primarily, we own wind instruments like clarinets, flutes, saxophones, recorders, and some pretty cool ethnic ones. But we also have a nice piano, some keyboards, a couple of organs, guitars, a ukulele, even some kazoos. Some are very big, like the Barry saxophone. Others are very small, like our Oscar Mayer wiener whistle. No two are alike. They sound great, but it takes some effort to keep them playable. They must be kept clean, tuned, and regulated. Pads must be level, joints lubricated. 
Endless reeds fixed and conditioned, wood bodies humidified, silver bodies kept free of tarnish. So, too, must we keep ourselves in top condition to be directed by the heavenly maestro. Mary Ellen Smoot said in the Fall 2000 General Conference, Truly, we may each be an instrument in the hands of God. Happily, we need not be all the same kind of instrument. Just as these instruments in an instrument in an orchestra differ in size, shape, and sound, we too are different from one another. We have different talents and inclinations, but just as the French horn cannot duplicate the sound of the piccolo, neither is it necessary for us all to serve the Lord in the same way. This is an important point. The Lord needs you to do it in your own way, using your own talents and your unique individual carrying. Remember that. Angels above us are silent notes taking of every action, then do what is right. No one else can do what you can do. Please do not compare yourselves to others. Rather, bloom where you're planted. This is one of the lessons I learned from growing up in a very small farming community. Of course, at the time, I felt rather put upon because of all the chores and responsibilities this afforded. I wondered each time we left events early to go home and milk why I couldn't stay like my city cousins. Their life looks so much easier, but looks can be deceiving. Do not seek for greener grass or covet thy neighbor. This is something my parents taught me. Learn to be content where you are. I also learned about service and how to be an instrument in the Lord's hands by observing my parents and their selfless acts of kindness to neighbor and stranger alike. It was common for my mom to feed a hobo passing by or to fix dinner for a needy family or to go visit someone just because. My dad was always first in line to help put up hay or to fill up someone's gas tank because of miscalculated mileage to the next gas station. He was especially good at listening and lifting other souls. He gave hope where there was despair and lightened many heavy burdens with his humor and kindness. He loved the Charlie Chaplin song, Smile. That actually is a great carry-on song. Light up your face with gladness. Hide every trace of sadness. Although a tear may be ever so near, that's the time you must keep on trying. Smile. What's the use of crying? You'll find that life is still worthwhile if you just smile. Sometimes we question our promptings because of what I call the smallness factor. We think that because the Lord wants us to do just a tiny thing that it's not important. This is wrong. Sister Bonnie Parkin, former General Relief Society President Councils. What does it mean to be an instrument in everyday terms? I think it means to nurture others. Joseph Smith called it acting according to those sympathies in our hearts. Believe me when I say each of us is much better than we think. We need to recognize and celebrate that which we're doing right. Much of what we do seems small and insignificant, just a part of daily living. When we are called to give an account to Jehovah, as the Prophet Joseph counseled, I know that we will have much to share. Carrying on is about being consistent. Line upon line, precept upon precept. Testimonies are built one step at a time. In his 2006 October General Conference address, Don R. Clark of the Second Quorum gave a talk about becoming instruments in the Lord's hands. One story is so tenderly told that I want to quote it. He begins, 
My maternal grandfather, Alma Benjamin Larson, was only 34 years old when he woke up one morning and noticed that he had problems seeing. Shortly thereafter, he lost his sight entirely. Grandfather had served a mission and been a faithful member of the church. He was a farmer with a wife and three children, and he could not imagine life without sight. Grandfather's wife and small children now had to bear the extra burdens of helping on the farm, and money became tight. During this time of physical darkness, many people became instruments in God's hands to help my blind grandfather. One experience that has a powerful impact on his family happened in 1919. It was a year of great financial difficulty for all the people in grandfather's town. Farms were being foreclosed, and businesses were going broke. There was a sizable mortgage on his farm, and grandfather received a statement saying he would have to pay $195 in order to carry the mortgage over for another year. For him, paying this bill was like demanding a pound of flesh. Nearly everyone was in the same condition, and it seemed impossible to obtain that much money. If he had gathered everything that the farm produced, the horses, cows, and machinery, he could not have sold them for $195. Grandfather asked a neighbor to butcher two or three of his own cows, and he sold them and some other products. He had extended credit to his neighbors with the understanding that they would pay at the end of the year, but none of his debtors was able to pay him. The economic situation for his family was bleak. Brother Clark quotes from his grandfather's journal. I shall never forget that cold evening just before Christmas of 1919. It looked as though we would lose the farm. My daughter Gladys laid a slip of paper in my hand and said, This came in the mail today. I took it to her mother and asked her what it was. This is what my wife read to me. Dear Brother Larson, I've had you on my mind all day today. I'm wondering if you are in financial trouble. If you are, I have $200 you may have. The letter was signed, Jim Drinkwater. Jim was a small crippled man, and he would have been the last man on earth that anyone would have thought had that much money on hand. I went to his house that night, and he said, Brother Larson, I received a wireless message from heaven this morning, and I could not get you off my mind all day. I was sure you were in financial trouble. Brother Drinkwater then gave me $200, and we sent the 195 to the mortgage company the extra $5 we bought boot and clothes for the children. Santa Claus did come that year. Brother Clark's grandfather then bears his testimony. The Lord has never let me down. He's touched the hearts of others as he's touched the heart of Brother Drinkwater. I bear witness that the only safety and security that I have ever found has come through trying to keep the commandments of the Lord and upholding and sustaining the authorities of this church. Then Brother Clark concludes. I've thought much about Jim Drinkwater and wondered how he came to be one that the Lord could trust. Jim was a little crippled man that God trusted to help a blind farmer with a heavy mortgage and three children. I've learned a great deal from my grandfather's experience with Jim Drinkwater. I've learned that a person does not need to have a church calling, an invitation to help someone, or even good health to become an instrument in the Lord's hands. My young brothers and sisters, strive to be someone the Lord can trust. Always be listening for that still, small voice. Have you received a wireless message from heaven today? President Uchtdorf gave this advice in the April 2011 General Conference. 
Often the Lord speaks to us in ways that we can hear only with our heart. To better hear his voice, it would be wise to turn down the volume control of the worldly noise in our lives. If we ignore or block out the promptings of the Spirit for whatever reason, they become less noticeable until we cannot hear them at all. Let us learn to hearken to the promptings of the Spirit and then be eager to heed them. As we help others carry on, our own burdens become lighter, become an instrument in the Lord's hands. Another suggestion for carrying on is to include the study of hymns in your daily personal worship time. Have you read what the First Presidency recommends in the preface to the hymn book? The hymns can greatly benefit us as individuals. Hymns can lift our spirits, give us courage, and move us to righteous action. They can fill our souls with heavenly thoughts and bring us a spirit of peace. Hymns can also help us withstand the temptations of the adversary. We encourage you to memorize your favorite hymns and study the scriptures that relate to them. Then, if unworthy thoughts enter your mind, sing a hymn to yourself, crowding out the evil with the good. I love the hymns. They are truly songs of the heart, and I highly encourage you to turn to them for inspiration. Each is a mini-sermon that can build testimony, strengthen resolves, and help us carry on. My own gospel convictions have developed and become stronger through the years as I've pondered their messages. I share a few personal experiences to illustrate the power of our hymns, and hope as I do, you will recall your own teaching moments. My first favorite was, There is a Green Hill Far Away. The simplicity of this text gave me a basic, childlike understanding of the unconditional love of our Savior. Oh, dearly, dearly has he loved, and we must love him too, and trust in his redeeming blood and try his works to do. As a teen, I participated in a dance festival at the annual June conference in Salt Lake City. This was so fun for me, a farm girl, who came to the big city to participate with hundreds of other youth in a spectacular event at the football stadium at the U. After the finale, as we dancers learned that the prophet Spencer W. Kimball was there, everyone spontaneously began to sing, We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet. My voice broke as the Spirit bore witness to me that we do have a living prophet. And this feeling has come again and again as I have opportunities to see prophets in person, not on TV, but here at BYU or in the conference center. I do give thanks for a prophet who guides us in these latter days. I went to Ricks College, now BYU-Idaho, and attended the weekly devotionals. One particular day I was feeling a bit depressed, just sort of sad, and wondering where my life was going as I trudged into the meeting. I do not remember who spoke that day, but I do remember singing hymn 250, We Are All Enlisted. Verse 3 was particularly poignant. Fighting for a kingdom, and the world is our foe. Happy are we, happy are we. Glad to join the army, we will sing as we go. We shall gain the victory by and by. Dangers may gather, why should we fear? Jesus, our leader, ever is near. He will protect us, comfort, and cheer. We're joyfully, joyfully marching to our home. As these words entered my sad heart that morning, I immediately felt buoyed up and happy to be part of God's army. On my mission, I had a goal to memorize as many hymns as possible. 
Hymn 29, A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief, was one of the first. As you know, this is the hymn that John Taylor sang for Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram that fateful day in June 1844 at Carthage. Taylor recalls, All of us felt unusually languid with a remarkable depression of spirits. In consonant with those feelings, I sang a song that had lately been introduced into Nauvoo entitled A Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief. After a lapse of some time, Brother Hiram requested me again to sing that song. I replied, Brother Hiram, I do not feel like singing, when he remarked, Oh, never mind. Commence singing, and you will get the spirit of it. At his request, I did so. This was a carry-on moment. It took me longer than most to marry. On occasion, I thought I might be that stereotypical old maid librarian. Turning to the hymns on many lonely evenings lifted my spirits and helped me to maintain eternal perspectives. Where could I turn for peace? Where was my solace? Where was the quiet hand to calm my anguish? Who, who could understand? He only won. In May 2002, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. About a month later, my father had a stroke and within a week died on July 3rd. This indeed was a time I needed strength to carry on. Hymn 115 gave me hope. Here bring your wounded hearts. Here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrows that heaven cannot heal. Come to the feast of love. Come ever knowing. Earth has no sorrow, but heaven can remove. I suspect that each of you experience similar soul-searching times and testify that hymns can heal our wounded hearts and bring solace. They can also move us to action. Our dear prophet Thomas S. Monson said, My brothers and sisters, may we resolve from this day forward to fill our hearts with love. May we go the extra mile to include in our lives any who are lonely or downhearted, who are suffering in any way. May we cheer up the sad and make someone feel glad. May we feel so that when the final summons is heard, we may have no serious regrets, no unfinished business, but we'll be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Daily hymns remind us how to live. We are sowing, daily sowing, countless seeds of good and ill. By a whisper sow we blessings. By a breath we scatter strife. In our words and thoughts and actions lie the seeds of death and life. You can make the pathway bright, fill the soul with heaven's light, if there's sunshine in your heart. You can live a happy life in this world of toil and strife. Are you ever burdened with a load of care? Does the cross seem heavy you are called to bear? Count your many blessings, every doubt will fly, and you will be singing as the days go by. In the days of trial, his saints he will cheer, improve each shining moment, and never stand still till the Master appear. His adorable will let us gladly fulfill and our talents improve by the patience of hope and the labor of love. Come unto him, all ye depressed, ye erring souls whose eyes are dim, ye weary ones who long for rest. Come unto him, come unto him. It is my prayer that we can all stand faithful and true. I know that our Savior lives and that this is the gospel of joy. 
Oh, youth of the noble birthright, carry on, carry on, carry on. I say these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Yielding to the Master Gardener. We've just heard from Janet B. Bradford. After the break, we'll return with Russell C. Taylor for The Gardener of Gethsemane. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Yielding to the Master Gardener. Next is Russell C. Taylor, Department Chair of the L. Tom Perry Special Collections in the Harold B. Lee Library at the time of this address, titled The Gardener of Gethsemane. Fellow students, today I feel much like King Benjamin did when he spoke to his people. For even at this time my whole frame doth tremble exceedingly while attempting to speak unto you. I have anticipated the anxiety of this moment for many months. Thinking I would get a sympathetic reaction from my library colleagues, I told them about my invitation to give a devotional address. That news, however, was met with an almost universal reaction. Laughter. (laughs) That was not the sort of empathy I was hoping for. My exercise buddies in the Richards Building, however, were full of advice about what I could say to you most of it worthless. But thanks anyway, guys. I owe you one. In the summer of 1842, the British artist William Henry Bartlett visited the Holy Land. He describes his first views of the city of Jerusalem. We descend the steep broken path on the left of our view into the valley of the Kidron, and crossing its dry bed by a small arch, reach a remarkable group of objects, venerable in the traditions of the place. On our right is a stony plot of ground, surrounded by a low wall, and and enclosing eight olive trees of very great antiquity. Our sketch will give an idea of the gnarled and time-worn character of these trees, supposed to be those of the Garden of Gethsemane. The trees themselves remind me of the celebrated cedars of Solomon on Mount Lebanon in the disproportionate hugeness of their venerable trunks to the thin foliage above. For ages the pilgrim has knelt and kissed them with tears, carrying thence a few of the scattered fruit or a portion of the bark to remind him of the spot where, for his salvation, the soul of his Redeemer was sorrowful even unto death. Modern pilgrims still take away relics from this holy place. Just a few years ago, my neighbors returned from Israel with olive leaves collected from the ground in the Garden of Gethsemane. I have often thought of that holy garden and how, nearly 2,000 years ago, the ancestors of today's trees witnessed the beginning of Christ's atoning sacrifice. If they now had a voice, what a story they could tell. I have also often thought that surely, since it was a garden, there was no doubt a gardener who lovingly tended those trees, nourishing them with precious water in times of drought, carefully pruning them to encourage their fruit, and harvesting the ripened olives. 
It is more than symbolic, I believe, that the scriptures often speak of the Savior as just such a gardener. Quoting the prophet Zenos, the Book of Mormon prophet Jacob said this, Hearken, O ye house of Israel, and hear the words of me, a prophet of the Lord. For behold, thus saith the Lord, I will liken thee, O house of Israel, like unto a tame olive tree, which a man took and nourished in his vineyard. And it grew and waxed old and began to decay. And it came to pass that the master of the vineyard went forth, and he saw that his olive tree began to decay. And he said, I will prune it and dig about it and nourish it, that perhaps it may shoot forth young and tender branches, and it perish not. One of my favorite stories of how the Savior directs our lives is told by Elder Hubie Brown, who throughout most of my teenage years was a counselor to President David O. McKay and was much loved by Church members. I first heard this story when I was a missionary in Germany in the 1960s. One of my fellow missionaries was a grandson of President Brown and had a tape recording of his grandfather relating this experience, which he entitled The Gardener and the Current Bush. I'll use President Brown's own words. In the early dawn, a young gardener was pruning his trees and shrubs. He had one choice currant bush, which had gone too much to wood. He feared, therefore, that it would produce little, if any, fruit. Accordingly, he trimmed and pruned the bush and cut it back. In fact, when he had finished, there was little left but stumps and roots. Tenderly, he considered what was left. It looked so sad and deeply hurt. On every stump, there seemed to be a tear where the pruning knife had cut away the growth of early spring. The poor bush seemed to speak to him, and he thought he heard it say, Oh, how could you be so cruel to me? You who claim to be my friend, who planted me and cared for me when I was young, and nurtured and encouraged me to grow, could you not see that I was rapidly responding to your care? I was nearly half as large as the trees across the fence and might soon have become like one of them. But now you have cut back my branches. The green, attractive leaves are gone, and I am in a disgrace among my fellows. The young gardener looked at the weeping bush and heard his plea with sympathetic understanding. His voice was full of kindness as he said, Do not cry. What I have done to you was necessary, that you might be a prized currant bush in my garden. You must not weep. All this will be for your good, and some day, when you see more clearly, when you are richly laden with luscious fruit, you will thank me and say, Surely he was a wise and loving gardener. He knew the purpose of my being, and I thank him now for what I thought was cruelty. At this point in the telling, Elder Brown's story became a personal reflection as he looked back forty years to when he was an officer in the Canadian Army, stationed in England during World War I. An opportunity for promotion had unexpectedly come up, and he was ordered to report to his commanding officer's quarters. Elder Brown had prepared for years for just such a position as the one he fully expected to be offered. He was confident that he would be given the promotion and the success of his military career would be assured. 
As he entered the commanding officer's quarters, President Brown noticed his own personnel file lying open on the desk in front of his superior. He also noticed a note written in a clear hand, This man is a Mormon. Elder Brown was informed that he would not be given the promotion he was expecting and was assigned what he considered a relatively unimportant post. He was crushed. He was convinced that his fellow soldiers would view this assignment as a sign that he had failed. He returned to his tent and knelt next to his cot and wept. He knew that he could never achieve his goals of becoming a high-ranking military officer. He cried out to God, Oh, how could you be so cruel to me, you who claim to be my friend, who brought me here and nurtured and encouraged me to grow? Could you not see that I was almost equal to the other men whom I have so long admired, but now I have been cut down? I am in disgrace among my fellows. Oh, how could you do this to me? Elder Brown felt humiliated, and his heart was full of bitterness. Then he seemed to hear an echo from the past. The words that were in his mind were words he had heard before, but where? Then he realized that they were the words of the currant bush, and his memory whispered, I'm the gardener here. The remembrance of that long-forgotten incident in the garden came rushing back to him, and his own memory answered the bitter plea he had cast at God. Do not cry. What I have done to you was necessary. You were not intended for what you sought to be. If I had allowed you to continue, you would have failed in the purpose for which I planted you, and my plans for you would have been defeated. Someday, when you are richly laden with experience, you will say, He was a wise gardener. He knew the purpose of my earth life. I thank him now for what I thought was cruel. Remorseful, the bitterness washed from his heart, President Brown spoke humbly to God and confessed, I know you now. You are the gardener, and I am the currant bush. Help me, dear God, to endure the pruning and to grow as you would have me grow, to take my allotted place in life and evermore to say, Thy will, not mine, be done. When I first heard this story as a missionary, I considered it a charming moralistic tale with little relevance to my own life and aspirations. Looking back over forty years, however, I see it more as a pattern of my life than I had ever anticipated. When I graduated in 1970 with a B.A. in history, I considered many options for a career, but decided to pursue a master's degree in library science, which was then offered here. In 1972, I began working at BYU as the assistant curator of special collections. The work was interesting, challenging, and satisfying, but for some reason, I can't even imagine what it was now. I was restless and wanted to do something different and more challenging. I told my wife I wanted to go to law school. Are you sure? was her reply. Oh, yes, positive. No question about it. It was no doubt my answer or something like that. So I did everything aspiring law students do, LSAT, countless applications, prayer, fasting, more prayer. Since my wife is from Vermont, we decided we'd apply to schools in the East. 
I was admitted to Syracuse University School of Law in 1975, so we sold our house, packed up our belongings, and moved our family, two young girls and one more baby on the way, to Syracuse, New York. Zenos describes this process of transplantation. And behold, saith the Lord of the vineyard, I take away many of these young and tender branches, and I will graft them whithersoever I will. And so we were grafted in, in another part of the kingdom. I didn't realize it at the time, but I later learned that when young BYU graduates move into communities around the world, that local ward and branch leaders have great expectations that they will arrive with strong leadership skills, a solid testimony of the gospel, and the ability to assume with confidence any calling in the Church. A BYU education is outstanding preparation for graduate school and successful careers. It also prepares you for leadership positions in the community and in the Church. So we were welcomed by Church members in Syracuse with excitement and expectation. We felt the Lord had indeed grafted us into this ward by calling us to Church assignments of service. But something felt surprisingly uneasy about my experience in law school. After the first year, I knew I wouldn't be comfortable practicing law. When I discussed my uneasiness with my wife, she was less than sympathetic. She said something to this effect, You've moved us halfway across the country. You're going to finish law school. She's a tough lady, but she's generally right. So persevere, I did, and as instructed, I graduated. Somewhere during my last year of law school, I got the idea of becoming an FBI agent. I suppose I was intrigued by what I thought would be the excitement of law enforcement and investigative work. The idea never occurred to me that perhaps I wouldn't be suited for such a profession. My patriarchal blessing contains language indicating that I would succeed at the vocation of my choice. In my own somewhat convoluted reasoning, I presumed that this meant that I only had to choose an honorable profession and success would be assured. Those of you who have applied for a federal job know that the wheels of our national government can move painfully slow. I went through the psychological screening, personal interviews, foreign language testing, and physical examinations rather quickly. Then I waited and waited and waited for something to happen. Fifteen months after graduation, I was finally invited to join a new agent's class at the FBI Academy in Quantico, Virginia. Needless to say, I was excited, nervous, and optimistic about my future. I felt like I stood on the threshold of a promising and successful career. I had talked with many FBI, CIA, and Secret Service agents and believed I truly could excel in law enforcement. The first few weeks of new agent training went very well. There was classroom instruction in various aspects of case investigations, psychology, constitutional law, along with challenging physical fitness goals to meet and firearms instruction. About four weeks into training, we were introduced to the indoor firing range. As I stood on the firing line, ready to fire at the target some 25 yards away, the overhead lights went out. The only lights on in the range were over the target. I raised my gun and pointed it downrange. I couldn't see the sight on the end of the barrel. I blinked my eyes. No change. There was just a blur where the sight should be. 
I fired six wildly inaccurate shots at the target. I couldn't believe what was happening. I had fired effectively on the outdoor range, but my eyes were doing strange things to me in the subdued lighting of the indoor range. My instructors pulled me aside and asked what was happening. I said I didn't know, but I was encouraged that they were willing to work with me to get through what we all thought would be a simple training problem. One Saturday shortly after that, I checked out from the armory a red handle, a weapon that had its firing pin removed, and went into the woods to practice dry firing at targets. It was a cloudy day, and I had the same experience as on the indoor range. The sight on the end of my barrel disappeared in a blur. This can't be happening, I thought. Maybe I should pray about this, I reasoned. Enos, the Book of Mormon prophet, had a wrestle before God that resulted in the remission of his sins. But it wasn't sin I was trying to free myself of. It was a physical condition that seriously hampered my ability to fire my weapon accurately. So for hours I wandered the woods, alternately firing and praying. Things, however, didn't get better. As luck would have it, my wife had our fourth child just a few days later, and I was given permission to fly back for the weekend to Connecticut, where she was staying with her parents. While in Hartford, I was able to visit with my eye doctor about my problem on the firing range. He told me that because of the severe astigmatism that I have in each eye, I couldn't hope for any vision improvement. My wife and I discussed our options, which were basically to try to stick with it and hope I could qualify on the firing range or to resign from the Bureau. On the flight back to Washington, D.C., I thought about my situation and remembered Elder Brown and his story of the gardener and the currant bush. Why was God doing this to me? Hadn't I been promised that I would succeed in the vocation of my choosing? Why was I being subjected to this painful pruning? The next day, I met with a special agent who was our class counselor and told him of my situation. I explained how uncomfortable I felt carrying a gun that I knew I wouldn't be able to fire accurately in certain lighting conditions. I would not only be a danger to criminals, I'd be a hazard to my fellow agents. This burden was too much for me. I decided that I would resign my position as a special agent. I wrote out a statement to this effect and handed it to him. He said he would pass it on to the FBI Academy director. I went back to my room and began to pack my bags. As I sat alone in my room, I felt at peace in my heart, knowing I had done the right thing. I realized that the promise I had been given in my patriarchal blessing would be honored if I carefully and prayerfully chose a profession that the Lord wanted me to pursue, not one that I selected merely because it was glamorous or exciting. As I pondered the future, my counselor returned and asked me if I would consider a non-agent position in the Bureau. There were several openings at the Academy I might be qualified for, he explained. Since I hadn't, didn't have anything else lined up, I told him I would consider it. I called Cindy and asked her what she thought about a position at the Academy. Since she was eager to be together again as a family, she told me I should accept a position if I was offered one. I spoke with several agents who had openings in their departments, or as the Bureau calls them, units, 
and was offered a position in the Office of Institutional Research and Development. It turned out to be a valuable opportunity to meet important people in the Bureau and to learn new skills. One of the people I eventually met was the chief of the director's speechwriting unit at FBI headquarters in Washington. A year or so later, when he had an opening in his unit for a speechwriter, he asked me to apply. I did and was offered the job. It was the beginning of a new career for me. When people find out that for 15 years I was a speechwriter, not just for the FBI, but later for the American Medical Association in Chicago, for Merck, a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey, and for Medtronic, a medical device company in Minneapolis, they comment that this must have been interesting work. It was, but the most interesting part of all of our experiences in these places was the wonderful people we met, both members of the Church and non-members. We enjoyed many choice opportunities to serve in the Kingdom and to associate with some of God's noble and great ones. My wife and I have felt as though the Lord has cultivated us, as the Lord of the vineyard in Zenos' allegory had cultivated his precious olive trees. I hope that the fruit we have borne and continue to bear is sweet and satisfying to him and those we serve. Nearly 15 years ago, I went through another pruning when my position in Minnesota was restructured, and I was no longer part of that structure. Again, it was a trying time, but the Lord of the Vineyard tended to our needs through the caring hands of our neighbors and fellow Church members. We gained new experiences and talents that would be invaluable to us as we, Cindy and I, sought to reestablish ourselves in the working world. One job I had during this three-year period of un- and underemployment was as an 1850s farmer on a living history farm run by the Minnesota State Historical Society. What a fun job that was, farming just like our ancestors did 150 years ago. I came away from that job with a greater appreciation for what they had to endure and with the knowledge that I could have done it also. That wasn't my only job. I had decided that I would try to find a library position again since I enjoyed working with books, documents, and people. So I found several jobs that helped me gain experience and get new skills with computers that I had missed out on having been gone from the library world for more than 20 years. Nearly 12 years ago, I was rehired at Special Collections in the Lee Library, the place I began my career decades before. During the interview process, I felt an unusual calmness, a feeling that the Lord was in charge and that things would work out as they were supposed to. This was a testimony to me that God watches over us and directs us to the place where He wants us to stand. I can honestly say that the job I have now, and I have had many others to compare it to, is the best job I have ever had. It is the place I am meant to be. I know that now. Let me relate an experience that gives me this assurance. On the morning of October 13, 2003, I was in the book stacks in the Elton Perry Special Collections looking at a collection of 18th and 19th century American almanacs with Professor Madison Sowell and a few fellow librarians. I had been working with Dr. Sowell to assemble materials that we could exhibit in connection with his upcoming lecture on using almanacs as research sources. 
Professor Sal reached into a box, pulled out one from 1781, and examined it. He handed it to me and mentioned that we should use this one because it had writing paper interleaved with the calendar pages, which allowed the almanac to be used as a diary, which it indeed had been. As I looked at the entries, I noticed frequent references to Stockbridge. This man lives in western Massachusetts, I thought to myself. I examined the first leaf of writing paper and saw this inscription, Diary of my grandfather, William Partridge, born 1753, H.W. Partridge. I was shocked. I knew that I had Partridge ancestors living in Pittsfield, not far from Stockbridge, about this time. Maybe this was one of them, a distant cousin, perhaps. I excused myself and went to my computer and called up the Family Search database and entered the name William Partridge and the birth year 1753. The search results displayed names I was familiar with. William's father, Oliver Partridge, his mother, Anna Williams, his wife, Jemima Bidwell, and one of his sons, Edward, first bishop of the Mormon Church who is my great-great-great-grandfather. In case you've lost track, that would make William Partridge my fourth great-grandfather. My colleagues were amazed at this discovery. After they left, it occurred to me that if we had one diary, perhaps we might have more. So I looked through the 200 or so almanacs in our collection, and sure enough, there were more. Forty-five more, each bearing William's characteristic marginal notations. No one knows for sure how these diaries ended up at BYU. I speculate that they were acquired decades ago when the library purchased a collection of early American almanacs from a book dealer in Denver. Whatever the explanation, they were essentially lost to researchers until Dr. Sowell pulled one out of a box, examined it, and handed it to me. It was more than a coincidence. In the April 1916 General Conference, President Joseph S. Smith said this, If we can see by the enlightening influence of the Spirit of God beyond the veil that separates us from the spirit world, Surely those who have passed beyond can see more clearly back here to us than it is possible for us to see to them. I believe we move in the presence of heavenly messengers and of heavenly beings. We begin to realize more and more fully as we become acquainted with the principles of the gospel that we are closely related to our kindred our ancestors, to our friends and associates and co-laborers who have preceded us into the spirit world. We cannot forget them. We do not cease to love them. We always hold them in our hearts, in memory, and thus we are associated and united to them by ties that we cannot break, that we cannot dissolve or free ourselves from. I have come to feel that there are indeed bands that tie me to this man, William Partridge. Seven years ago, he reached across the veil and placed into my hands an account of his life here upon the earth. 
an account that he had always intended for his descendants to have. This experience is just one of the many spiritual manifestations that I have felt that lead me to believe that our Father in Heaven and His Son, Jesus Christ, are aware of us and will lead us if we will listen to the Holy Spirit. If we will look for it, we will see the caring hands of the gardener of Gethsemane shaping our lives in ways we cannot now imagine. I pray that we might yield to this pruning so that we can become the people God would have us be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Yielding to the Master Gardener with thoughts from Janet B. Bradford and Russell C. Taylor. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.